Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Can you believe it's 2023 already? We're recording this live on, on January 5th, 2023. This is episode 269. Nice. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Starting you to go on. Happy New Year, Nick. I hope you had a fantastic holiday. It's great to be back. It is great to be back, Barry. I am so thrilled to see you here today with your bright and shining face, uh, ignoring some of my inappropriate jokes I make right at the top. we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how the tech is finally good enough for an airship revival. And later, we're going to be answering some questions from the community about job titles, what we think about democratizing research, and some of our favorite reading recommendations. But first, we got some programming notes here. Uh, hey, did you know that we have been doing an entire Patreon refresh. We mentioned this briefly before we went on break, but we've updated some of the role titles to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, exclusive, alluring. Uh, but we've also clarified a lot of the benefits going on with our Patreon. You know, I think there's some uh, some roles that historically haven't really had a whole lot of extra benefits for the cost that was associated with them. And to do to remedy that, we've been sort of, adding in some of these additional benefits. Uh, Human Factors Cast Academy is one of those new benefits, and that's an active development. That's where we're sort of developing courses behind the scenes. You subscribe as a Patreon at a certain tier, and you get access to all that resource. Uh, so that'll be a, you know, and that's that's not just classes that we put together, but that's like actual resources that we come across in our day-to-day. -day. Uh, we're just throwing everything up there available for you, uh, something that you have as a reference. Uh, so now's a great time to become a patron. If you're thinking, if your New Year's resolution is, hey, I want to support a small, independent uh, human factors podcast that is encouraging pro-social science communication in the field of human factors, then now's your time. Barry, what's up, what's up at uh, 1202? <laughs> So in 1202, we're still back in 2022. So we've got the 12, uh, the 2022 recap where we go over some of the statistics, some what people have been listening to, some of the most popular episodes, and generally just a general good look back into that. 2023, though, is looking quite cool. I've got some interviews lined up. That, so in January, we'll have the look into 2023, and there's going to be some really cool interviews coming in. So they're all just being organized and finalized as we speak. So yeah, quite excited about that. Can I just say that I'm proud of you for what you've done over at 1202? You've really broken into a lot of new different types of media, video being one of them, shorts being another one of them. Uh, I'm just proud of you, and I don't say that enough. It's your fault, because if you had to raise the standard over here so high, then I wouldn't have felt I had to do it. Uh, but no, you pushed out there. But no, I, I appreciate that. Yes, I am proud of you, Barry. And now, let's get into the part of the show I'm so excited for. It's... Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. Barry, is today's story all about airships? Airships, 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 airships. What's the story? So this week, we're going to talk about ChatGBT. And, oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, this week, we talked about the tech is, thanks to, uh, thanks to Nick, finally good enough for an airship revival. So in the early, 19, early half of the 1900s, airships were seen as a huge advance in technology, able to carry huge weights over long distances, 
but the huge crews needed and the slow speed were seen as a major problem. Now, with the Hindenburg disaster in 1937 and advances made during World War II in aircraft technology, they pretty much consigned the airship to history, with the exceptions being around advertising and sightseeing. However, Lighter Than Air, or LTA Research, based in uh, Mountain View in California, thinks it's time for a revival. And they're working on, the, on a new generation of airships. The company believes that airships have the potential to be used in humanitarian relief missions due to their ability to stay aloft for long periods of time, their long range, and their ability to carry significant payloads. LTA's Pathfinder 1 airship is 120 meters long, 20 meters in diameter, and is expected to carry around four tons of cargo, in addition to its crew, water ballast, and fuel. The airship will have a top speed of 65 knots and a sustained cruise speed of 35 to 40 knots. Pathfinder 1 is made with carbon fiber tubes attached, tit attached to titanium hubs and has an outer covering made of a three-layer laminate of synthetics. The airship also has 12 electric motors for propulsion and is controlled by a fly-by-wire system. Additionally, Pathfinder 1 is equipped with LiDAR sensors and a weather radar system. So, Nick, what are your thoughts on being able to take an airship to conference next year rather than just a flight? <laughs> Let's go! I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> look, like I, I love. Um, so let me let me tell a little anecdote that I didn't have planned for this, but at one point during a uh, a Halloween season, a, a group of us, uh, in fact, one of the original hosts of the show, Billy, he he put together a group, and we all kind of dressed up as, as steampunk characters and as part of this, we had to create a backstory. I was an airship captain. So I'm a little bit uh, partial to this. So, I mean, you can see where my love for this comes from, but I, I love, I love this. Uh, this is awesome. Um, can we be the first human factors podcast to broadcast live from an airship? I would love to do this for HFES 2023. Let's reach out to leadership to see if we can do it. Uh, but... uh, only if we could get the human factors cast logo on the side of the airship. Oh! That's it. That's be. it. Oh man, how expensive would that be? <laughs> uh, Barry, what what are your sort of thoughts around this? So I think it's in, purely from the airship bit alone. I think it's brilliant. I do think there is something quite majestic and awesome about the way that airship. You know, you've got fast jets, you've got hot air balloons that are kind of directionless. They're just wafting the wind. You've got all different, you know, helicopters and stuff. But they're all really manic really um really you know ju we just need to get to where we're going and we need to do it quickly and there and then um whereas airships themselves just they die you know it's not like an, a hot air balloon they, they've got motion in the right direction they go and crack on do what they're doing and they get there quite sedately but they are big sort of almost ponderous machines um so from that perspective and what we've heard in the in the article about the way that they're using new technologies, the whole fly-by-wire system, I think is really, really interesting. Um, and, and the impact of that will have for safety and things like that. But I can't help coming back to, and this is where my bucket of pessimism gets thrown all over this story is why? What truly, what is the cost-effective use case of these? And I think with this might be what we need to sort of get into a bit um, for me is, what value does this give you over a, a helicopter, over a jet, over an aeroplane, over, um, you know, other different uh, hot air balloon? Um, why is it good? What what added value does it give you apart from just being really cool? So, yeah, I think I got, you, I got you covered. 
I got you good, covered good. on it. I can't, I can't wait. Teach me. Sustained operations. That's the key here. With a helicopter or an airplane <clears throat> without needing to refuel, you don't have the ability to do uh, sustained operations. Also, with an airship, you can also use it as sort of a central command base almost in a lot of ways. If it's in the sky, kind of positioned where it needs to be, you have access to see what's going on below you, right? And I think that's why uh, this company here is looking at sort of using an airship in a humanitarian aid use case. Uh, outside of that, let's talk through a couple other use cases. We'll come back to the humanitarian aid because it's a really interesting one um, that carries some uh, a lot of interesting human factors considerations for sure. But let's talk about some of the other things that we can do with airships, right? So you mentioned it in the blurb, advertising. You see a Goodyear yep. blimp across every football field every game uh it's part of the show you get an aerial view from the goodyear blimp like there's it's it's front and center everyone in that stadium can see that blimp flying around uh aerial advertising right so and that's like from, from what just what you, you know like with the cameras on board and stuff i would imagine it's a lot more of a stable platform than say a uh a uav something with propellers on it that obviously right will will have a certain amount of vibration and things like that. And, um, you know, we know that UAVs at the moment still have a relatively short period in the air, um, you know, for when they want to do stuff. So, yes, as a as a, as a a platform for photography and for, um, you know, just being res- – once you've got the Human Factors Cast logo on the side of it, everybody will know about it. Right, exactly. And you're right. I mean, even with helicopters, there's still some vibration there. Although mm-hmm. the camera systems on board, those are typically compensated for it. And they usually don't have a whole lot of issues uh, and, and can take a lot more, I guess, unique pathways, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. and and faster pathways than uh, something that is slow and sluggish. But I think there is still, you know, if you need a stationary camera on something, that brings me to my next point, surveillance and and mapping. Right. Let, mm-hmm. Like, let's say you need uh, you can equip it with uh, cameras, other sensors. It can be used for mapping, environmental monitoring, uh, surveillance, like I mentioned, uh, just looking at various things. And I think um, from the perspective of intelligence, uh, you know, what's to say that you couldn't park this at the border of a country in the airspace of the bordering country and just, you know, yeah, for, for months, like just just park it there. And and no, it's not really subtle, though, is it? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, I didn't say it's tactical. No, but I mean, I think <laughs> this is because most people sort of look at this and think of, and certainly I did. You know, like like the mil- as he got military application. In the grand scheme of things, I think not, um, because there are just too many different platforms that do what it could do better, and it's just a big target. But with what you're saying around, um, you know, being a control center. Um, around a human, you know, some sort of relief or some sort of civilian-based coordination, then um, then that has a lot of value in it. Right. there. I mean, it could be like you could have the USS Mercy of the Sky, um, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. right, where you have uh, this, this floating hospital, for lack of a better term, uh, some way to cart folks up to there. But then that also gets around the issue that the Mercy has, which it's, it's coastal bound, um, where this could fly inland and park wherever it needs to, depending on what disaster is happening. So, I mean, from a military perspective, yeah, you're right. It's not going to have too many military purposes, but in terms of surveillance, communication, transportation, even, 
uh, in in situations where um, perhaps something needs to be off the ground for a prolonged time. Really, what we're getting at here is that prolonged flight um, where a helicopter could do it. Uh, is it going to be as cost effective, you know, as it's the whole speed, accuracy, cost trade off that you'd get with a helicopter versus an airship? Uh, let's bring up some other use cases here. Um, telecommunications, we've kind of brought up that mobile command center um, perspective. But think about this. Like, what happens if um, this type of technology could be affordable to countries that have um, sort of a, a, the inability to create traditional infrastructure? What if you put a blimp out there that was a central communications hub for that area and that was their infrastructure. That'd be cool. Cool. Kind of cool. Uh, transportation and entertainment. I'm going to combine here because no one's going to use these for transportation. I think the co- it would be cost inhibitive to do so uh, and time inhibitive to do so. Right. The prolonged sustained operations of being able to get somewhere is there, but it would take you days, weeks, months as, as opposed to airplane. But then people do go on cruises. That's the point I was going to bring up about entertainment. So if you have, if you, you, if you treat them like cruise ships, then the destination isn't necessarily, or the location isn't necessarily the destination, but the mode of transportation is. You could build these cruise airships, uh, which would be rad. I'd be super excited about that. (laughs) Um, I think it goes without saying, but, uh, Scientific research could potentially be an application here, right? Um, you have studying the Earth's atmosphere, conducting experiments, even in microgravity, if we can get them up that high. So, I mean, without the need to sort of have some sort of sustained uh, propellant, right? I, I think that's the that's the key there. Um, agriculture, so crop dusting, irrigation, pest control, especially in, in countries that don't necessarily have that infrastructure that I was talking about earlier. Uh, environmental monitoring. We kind of talked a little bit about, um, I'm looking at a list if it's not completely clear. I didn't come up with all these myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I'm bringing in the relevant ones, right? Some of these are not great. Um, but, you know, in terms of construction too, in terms of like these, these places that are kind of off the grid or harder to get to, you could land an airship out there and just start building something when you don't necessarily have a, 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 a cargo ship that can get out there. You can bring all of these materials up on an airship, bring them out. And that can be sort of the, the method of getting a lot of resources to a place that has traditionally no infrastructure uh, for transportation, right. Instead of rail or road. And I guess in many ways where time isn't necessarily a critical factor, or you could tie you, you know, the timing well in advance, right. It must be a fairly efficient way of doing it. Because once it's sort of, because, you know, it'll it have a certain level of momentum um, and okay, it's not powered by an ion engine or, or anything like that. But if you can go so basically long and slow um, and you know you need to get a whole raft of infrastructure without much ecological or climate damage or, or even things like if you've gone into an area that maybe is noise sensitive and things like that, just the ability for it to almost almost waft in land, deploy a whole bunch of capability without having to have all the damage to the infrastructure on the way in, um, but still build something quite substantial. Right. And and we are talking a lot about like, what if, what if, what if? Here's a, here's a specific example of where this could tr- really, really be um, 
a, a good example of how this could be used, right? So think about uh, the traditional panels of transporting like renewable energy sources, solar panels, wind turbines, um, putting them in remote locations, middle of the desert uh, or really windy spots. Now that might be a little tricky for um, uh, for an airship to do. However, if the conditions are right when they're landing, they can wait outside and come in um, or land just outside that zone and move them in. So you could have, you know, in, in these really remote areas, you have this renewable energy that's there that you don't necessarily have to transport again via truck uh, on the roads, which you have. I don't know if you've ever seen this here in the States. You see it quite frequently, but like there's these trucks that carry the blades to these wind turbines and they're massive. Oh, huge. Yeah, yeah. They're massive. They're yeah. like, you know, three or four buses long. And so, you know, as you're driving on the street, not only is it dangerous for everybody around them, but it's, you know, it, it's very costly mistake. If you make that mistake, load it up on an airship, bring it out there. You're good. Right. And if you're going to do the, um, the, the one, the, the uh, wind farms at sea. Yeah, exactly. That's another way of potentially getting them out there as well. Although I think a boat might be more efficient at that point, but we'll, you know. Uh, depends how much of a risk take you are. Yeah, I guess I like it does. It. And it depends on how, how you know, what resources are available, all that stuff. Anyway, I think we've gone through a lot of different use cases here. Let's talk about some of the human factors applications, because, again, as I think we should look at this through the disaster response sort of lens, the humanitarian aid um, just because it is sort of an example that this specific company wants to look at. Um, and really what this could be used for is, is damage assessment, coordination of those recovery efforts. Um, so for hurricanes, earthquakes, those types of things. Mm -hmm. We can talk about the broader human factors applications, but I want to look at it through that lens. So where do you want to start? I've talked about a lot of use cases and we're just now starting. <laughs> so I want to get into, into the engineering of it, really, because that's where, you know, this is my bread and butter stuff that where I get quite excited. So the initial, so I started to dive into, right, well, what sort of interface? It's all fly-by-wire. So we're taking the latest technologies that you can have on any sort of jet aircraft, um, or rotorcraft and be able to bring all of that sort of stuff in brilliant um and really that that could that should be just chuck it in let it go because it's not fast is it it's 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 slow so actually that the whole user interface bit of it should be should be easy yeah you agree for the most uh, part i think i think i think when we get to the what makes it unique that is where mm -hmm. there's going to be some deviations here yes so oh yeah so in, in theory, what we should be able to do is is take current cockpit technology and and throw it in. And from a so from a user perspective, almost everything else is gravy at that point. Um, we can make that happen. However, and before we jump into the unique bit about what makes it unique that way, is well actually do we need a, do we need any sort of user interface at all? Given the speed, given what we're doing with it, should this just be either all remote control or just completely autonomous? No and no. <laughs> I think there should <laughs> no. There should definitely be an operator on board, especially for some of these mission critical. Um, like what? Well, I think you have, especially in situations where uh, something can change quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. New pieces of information. You need to be able to talk with crew. That is where it's going to be crucial that you have an onboard pilot 
Um, but I think in some cases, like you, like you were saying, uh, with like the the remote distribution of of green energy, th- like that can be automated. Fine, I I don't have a preference there, but I just think it opens up. Um, so going back to the 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 humanitarian operation idea, is if you've got, um, I mean, I do think that you know there needs to be crew, crew on board because I think we we're, we're down with that. But there is an opportunity here for a an operator to be on the ground. Um, and saying rather than saying right, move it forward a bit, forward a bit, forward a bit down, they should be able to control it remotely and just dock it or bring it in themselves. A bit like you have on um, quite a lot of um, you know large machinery now, where you have the remote, you, you have the ability to take the remote control out of the cab and do it and do some remote operation. I think this is asking for similar things somehow in a way that I, ha- I haven't quite devised yet. Uh, but you could just imagine saying, right, okay, we, we come into you, use your login through your phone app and bring us in or or something of that nature. I just think that there's a, there's a whole load of ways that we could do with this to make it really cool. Um, but I think that gives us a segue into why it's unique. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the attributes that make this thing so unique, right? One of them is the volume that this thing takes up, right? You you mentioned this could be like a cargo ship in the sky. And mm-hmm. the size of this thing is just over, uh, the specific one is just over the size of one football field, one American football field. And that is quite large. Um, if you think about, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of things in flight, um, you have planes that are not that big. Um, are are there any planes that are that big? I'm sure there's got to be at least one, there's right? The, there's the uh, Russian Antonov. Okay, yeah, I'm just thinking like there's there's very few aircraft that that are that large. Um, and when it comes to navigating those things, you can think of like the the Goodyear Blimp as a good example. You're navigating uh, uh, sometimes in the middle of a city above the buildings um, at a safe distance, but you can imagine in a in a situation where humanitarian need uh, is needed or humanitarian aid is needed coming into a city and needing to, I don't know, drop supplies or um, transport people up and down. There's going to be some other considerations there from navigation perspective that are not necessarily present on other aircraft. You're not going to have a helicopter that large, that's for sure. And if it yeah. operates in the same type of way that a helicopter operates, that's just something that you have to think about. Uh, spatially in relation to your surroundings. Now, we've brought up the slow speed of these things many times, but I think one one sort of critical aspect here that is going to be uh, different is that it will take longer to develop the momentum to react to different things like weather systems, right? Um, it does have powered engines, um, whether those are prop engines or jet engines. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's just that the the inertia that it takes to respond to something will take longer to do. You also have, um, like we talked about this, that's kind of where the benefit of these things exist, at least in my mind. And with that, you have the issue of crew fatigue, right? Classic human factors issue where those on board either need to be taken care of or have shifts. So there's this whole other aspect to crew resource management that we now have to think about for folks on board these flights, what what do their roles entail? Uh, how do they um, birth the people up on this? Do they even birth them on board, or do they birth them, you know, somewhere else? Do they um, 
I, I don't know, do, like what kind of uh, recreation do they have on board for these the livelihood of these people, these, this crew? Mm-hmm. Um, when the flights aren't, you know, two to three hours, it's like days. You got to start thinking about it like a like a naval deployment rather than a, um, you know, f- short flight. Uh, and then maintenance, there's probably some different maintenance schedule compared to other aircraft where, you know, one rip in the in the blimp here might not be so great. So uh, that's definitely got to <laughs> in the office. Um, yeah. Yes, I mean, it's things attitudes like um, Ford or foreign object debris might mm-hmm. might it will be different, wouldn't it? Because obviously, yes, they don't necessarily land on the runway, but any sort of wash up. Is going to be um, is going to be going to be an issue. Um, equally with the with the training as well, the training is going to be, you would think, quite different to, you know, air crew and um, air maintenance crew and things could normally transfer transfer between types of aircraft, you know, because generally they've got an engine in the back or they've got some engines on the wings. They go and the the principles are largely similar. Um, I think that probably with um, with an airship. It's fundamentally different, um, so the, the the you have to have a lot more unique training to to get there. Yeah, and speaking of training, I think that really is a good segue into what happens in the case of like an emergency situation, right? You mentioned loss of an engine, but what if we have Hindenburg 2.0 here? What kind of safety systems are on board? Um, you know, I don't believe they're using. I, I don't know. I, I don't know about airships that much, folks, uh, despite how much I've been excited about them. Like, do they use flammable gas as a I, I can't imagine that it would be as flammable as the Hindenburg because <laughs> they used what helium in that thing. Yeah, I think they're about using helium in this as well. Oh, OK. Um, well, then... But because of the because of the, what they're doing there, um, they're, they're being able to seal it in, in a much more um, in a much better way. Um, because they're using synthetic, um, because obviously in Hindenburg they u- literally use canvas, um, mm-hmm. to to do it, um, or um, doped cotton as they uh, doped cotton canvas, um, whereas the um, the LTA version has three layer laminate of synthetics, including polyvinyl fluoride on the outermost layer. The middle layer is a loose weave of fire retardant, a word I can't say fibers, and the inner layer is a polyester, so in, it, similar to what they use on racing boats. Yeah. So they've got they, it's allowed them to integrate, I guess, materials with more characteristics against things that we that we don't want, i.e., fire, um, bird strikes. It, yeah, <laughs> well, crikey, yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, but also, the, the, being able to use like sort of re, you know modern metals and things, so um, um, to to make that make it a lot lighter. So. So let's let's look at the emergency here, uh, the emergency situations. Let's say there is sort of a critical leak um, in the sh- the shell. What do they call it? The blimp? Yeah. Um, whatever it is they call it. <laughs> really scientific. But w- whatever it is, let's say there's a leak and they're, they're dropping altitude. There has to be some protocols in place for how to respond to that. And you're not going to be able to have the same amount of distance that you would in like an, an aircraft, right? Even helicopters, if they use their, and they, they lose their engines, they're still going to glide down as you know, they don't just drop from the sky. Um, right. The, the rotation still keeps them going, especially because it, you know, 
that they're still coming down. So there's a way to recover in either of those scenarios. Now, if you're over a heavy populated area or, um, you know, where this could damage potentially some things, you want to make sure you get out of that range. But like, how do you what's the landing protocol for this thing in an emergency situation? You're not going to go to the nearest airstrip. Um, And then you have to think about evacuation from that. Right. Is it just the parachute and you're out? Or, uh, you know, are there things that you have to secure on board, especially if they are heavy and could fall out? And like, because you I, theoretically, I'm imagining a, a crash in slow motion where you have a lot more time to determine what you need to do, depending on how big that puncture is. Um, yes. But, you know, what what do you need to secure to, to ensure that the safety of those on on the ground, right? If something falls out and I, I'd imagine, I don't know. If it, Anyway, that's just a consideration here, emergency situations. But there's other, I mean, there's, I guess there's other emergency situations as well, which you need to consider um, things like, so it's a fly-by-wire system. What happens if you lose your fly-by-wire? Right. Um, so you lose um, the ability to to direct it. It turns into a big, big hot air balloon and at the mercy of the, at the literally at the mercy of the elements. Um, you know, it's things like that as well. So I guess the... The obvious one is to think about, as you sort of meant, is fire, because there is a massive cultural issue here, um, and because it, it's everybody, so even though actually it's interesting, not that many people know about the detail of the Hindenburg disaster, you know, but everybody's heard of the Hindenburg disaster because everybody goes, "Oh, airships Hindenburg," you know, it's bad. But the Hindenburg happened before the start of the Second World War. And they were still using hot air balloons and blimps all the way through the Second World War for all sorts of um, air defense, for intelligence, reconnaissance, all these sort of things. They, it was still being used. It was only because of really the, the efficiencies and the development in, in fast air technology that sort of rendered, rendered them obsolete. So, But people still think about the Hindenburg and still think that the, an airship is just going to blow up because that's what airships do. So how much of a of a barrier just on that perspective alone? Because we we know that once people get, and we've talked about it on the show numerous times, I think, um, when people have an idea in their heads that something is unsafe, then it almost doesn't matter how safe it is. People are just not going to use it. So what's it going to take to um, to get over the Hindenburg? That's a good question. And one that I don't know from a cultural perspective, like, Okay, today, Barry, would you step into an airship? Yeah, it'd be cool. I mentioned at the top, I want to do a podcast from an airship. I want yeah. on. Uh, so, like, there are people like us who who understand the technology and understand what's going on. I think there's it's going to be very but, similar. But, right? Put that into context. I'm also more than happy to be on the first SpaceX mission to Mars as well and right. to go and visit the moon. So that probably gives you an idea about my risk appetite about this new crazy stuff. Let um, me well let me let me counteract that by saying I would not be on a flight to the moon or Mars. Um I would I'd be on like the fiftieth through five hundredth. Um I think that's more my threshold. But how are we gonna be on the first podcast from Mars if if you're not gonna be there? <laughs> Dude. Well we'll we'll do it like HFES where you remote and then I respond to you like twenty minutes later and then you get it twenty minutes later <laughs> and then <laughs> the the longest recording in the world. Anyway, sorry, we, we digress. <laughs> We do. But but I mean, you bring up a good point. Like, I think uh, from from my perspective, I don't know how many people would have hang ups in them if, for example, you had things like air tourism cruises where, Mm. 
you know, you have sort of the um, the experience of being on one of these things and floating above your favorite cities and you can look down and disembark or, uh, or debark or I words are hard today, folks, but you get <laughs> off, you get off and you see the city and then you come back on and you go to the next city. I think that could be, um, you know, as, as they become more commonplace as like a cruise ship and a port in a major city. Uh, you start to see, you know, higher adoption of these things. And I think there's enough people who understand what the limitations and uh, of the Hindenburg were and what where the tech is at today to understand what the difference between the two are, right? I think, um, you know, we didn't... <laughs> I don't, I don't know the, the bad example, but I was going to say, you know, we didn't stop going to space after some of the, after challenger, like, yeah, we, we still use space shuttles. Yeah. I mean, but, but that wasn't the public. So, I mean, it's kind of like you have to, uh, but I mean, we did, we don't stop using aircraft after air, air, um, after airplane yeah. disasters there. I mean, well, on a day by day basis, there are the biggest cause of accidents in, in the world is automobiles. Right. Yeah, we, 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 we all jump in our car every day. So, yep. Because our yeah. perception of risk is just is totally different now. Now, when it comes to culture, there's some interesting things going on here that I'm I'm wondering how we're going to play out in like everyday <laughs> scenarios or not everyday scenarios in like these disaster relief scenarios. Let's say that. Right. How do different cultures view airships? Um, is there going to be some inherent. uh I guess like, oh, our saviors are coming from the sky. Literally, saviors coming from the sky. Heavenly saviors are. Is there any sort of imagery that that sort of has an impact on people? If so, is this something that we want to do in humanitarian aid effort, efforts for those cultures? Right? It, probably not. We <laughs> probably want to try to do it a different way if it's going to have that big of an impact. I just don't know. These are questions that I have, not necessarily. Uh, I'm just opening cans of worms here, but well, um, you know the presence of one of these airships too will will it cause more panic? That's another question. It's like, oh, they're here. The mercy is here. The the yeah. like is that going to cause more panic or is it going to cause relief? Is it going to be a site that is, um, I don't know, like relieving to see or or just a, a sign of an omen? And the, I don't know. That's definitely a way that I guess um, we in the human factors domain can help deliver that because, as we've said before, um, the side of this um, of an airship is a massive blank canvas. So, is there opportunities there to be having messaging on the side of it, either static or dynamic? Um, yeah. So, when you're coming into somewhere, you know, I think the amount of cultures it would effect in thinking of that heavenly savior thing is probably quite small because most countries now are connected one way or another you're right uh, to think but if they're being cut off and they don't know it's coming or you know what the state of the world is etc etc um some people might see it as as people you know people uh, maybe other countries take advantage and so it's an invasion coming in um you know, because because they're in distress, because they because they're in in need and all that sort of stuff. So, the ability to use this as a big messaging platform to say, right, that you we might not be able to come directly down and help you, but here's things that you need to do. Um, this is what we're here to do, and um, you know, a big red cross on the side of it type of thing as well. Yeah, um, or or you could have, like you said, the the digital messaging on the side. I would love mm -hmm. that. Either you know, like loudspeakers coming down. Everything is fine. We're here to help in the local language. Yes. 
yeah, that's nothing's wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, do you have any other loose rounds on this one? This one is a fun one for me. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting, and I think I look forward to to hopefully following this, and maybe in six six months time, twelve months time, when they get onto their um, you know, they they build it, gonna do like build an air dock, and they're gonna um, build another couple of versions of these. Uh, it'd be quite interesting to to keep checking in with it, even in maybe just you know in the one more things or, or something, just to see where they're going and what they're doing, and maybe if we keep on pushing the fact that we're talking about them, we may actually broadcast from there one day. That would be Ooh. fun. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Like, uh, let, let them know that we're talking about them. We'd love to yeah. be a part of that. Um, exclusive that awesome. Doom Factors podcast. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at IEEE Spectrum for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to our original articles uh, on our weekly roundups in our blog. And also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories. If you want to vote on uh, what the story is for next week, we do post all those freely available to the public on our Patreon. So you can join us there, vote. Even if you're not a patron, you can vote there. Um, and decide the fate of the show for next week. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our our, uh, Human Factors cast, all access patrons like Michelle Tripp, uh, patrons like you keep the show running, truly. Like all your support really matters. Really, really matters. We we do a lot of stuff over here. So so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh hey, did you know that we also have a little community for everyone? Um, we have a Discord that we have. Uh, you can get involved talking with other human factors professionals from all over the world. Uh, get access to some of the resources we got our hands on over the last couple of years. We post websites in there all the time. Um, discussions about a variety of things lately. It's been sort of a, a discussion around um undergraduate coursework and and what might be good to augment your uh, professional career in in the human factors field you can even chat with other people in the voice channel although i've not seen that yet maybe you guys can be the first i don't know <laughs> it's also where we conduct our lab chat so uh, we're very active in there um at least from a lab side you can't see it but we're we're active in there and we know it's an effective tool for getting stuff done so uh there's also career advice and um if you if you have questionnaires for your research that you want other people to uh, to take or, you know, get some thoughts and opinions on from other human factors folks in the field, drop them there. Uh, it's it's a great community. I'm really happy to be a part of it uh, and really glad that so many of you have joined. So uh, if you are interested in joining that little community of human factors folks, 
uh, and non-human factors folks in there too. You, you can uh, join us on our Discord. Link's in the description. All right, why don't we go ahead and get into the next part of the show we like to call... It came from... It came from... That's right. Switching gears, getting to It Came From. This is where we look all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. So if you find any of these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're watching or listening to help other people find this type of content. We got three tonight. Um, the first one here is by HF Woman on the Human Factors subreddit. I always like it when we get the Human Factors subreddit up in here. Uh, so this is, what is your job title? I'll be graduating in summer 2023 and in the middle of job hunting. Curious to see what job titles people have. When I look up human factors in LinkedIn, the majority of options are in UX roles that focus on design and I and want a portfolio. Barry, what job titles have you seen out there? What what job titles do you have? have, had? Um, <laughs> well, my job title is quite easy. It's a managing director. There you <laughs> go. Fairly generic. Um, no, but I think you've got everything. So I've had, in fact, very how many of mine have actually had had human factors in them? So at the moment, I call myself human factors practitioner, just in in very generic terms. Um, prior to that, when I was employed by other people, I was um, human factors scientist, um, human factors research scientist, um, and then I've been a technical human factors scientist, technical human factors engineer, human factors engineer, human factors researcher. And what was I? Oh, then my one of my favorite. I, I was a technical specialist, and then I was a technical specialist in brackets generalist. So I, I couldn't quite well, never. Work. <laughs> yeah, no, that was different. Um, but actually, in the grand scheme of things, what I would be looking for in the in the whole job hunting bit is basically anything that involves human factors and or um, user experience UX um, with a bit of you know HMI. A, HCI maybe and, and if there's more generic uh, more specifics that you're interested in but anything with human factors and ergonomics and UX I think are much more popular terms now than they have been in the past 10 years so anything on that the only other bit on I guess I meant to mention on grades great so basically we can talk about junior senior principal senior principal executive they're all kind of dependent on what your uh, what the company does and how the company bounds them. So a, a principal and a principal human factors engineer in one company will not be the same. It might sound the same, look the same, but they won't be the same in a, in a different company because they'll have bounded them differently in some way um, to suit their, um, well, just to give you a good excuse to pay you less largely. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, so that's just a thing on, on grade boundaries as well. Yeah, for me, I'm not going to go through every job title I've had. I, I'll talk about sort of, a common one that I have uh, and then one with human factors in it. And then one weird one, that's kind of the approach I'll take here. So the common one uh, that I have that I see everywhere is senior user experience researcher. That's, that's the title that I have right now. Uh, I, I think of myself as a human factors practitioner as well, Barry, like I, I practice in human factors when I do my job. Um, and so, and, and the podcast too. So I, I practice in human factors. I'm a human factor practitioner um, in past jobs. I've had the title of human factors engineer, um, you've mentioned scientist practitioner. I've seen all those variations. The one that I held was human factors engineer. Uh, and then the, the weird one was UX UI specialist. Um, that's not, doesn't really have, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, uh, so, so I, yeah, it does really vary, um, the gamut there in terms of, does it have human factors in the title? Does it not? Uh, what you're going to be looking for, at least in the job description, is the mention of human factors. And I think that's the important thing is if they understand 
that you as a human fact, like, you know, trained in human factors, conducts human factor science, that type of thing, um, has, holds a master's or PhD from an accredited university with the focus in human factor psychology or engineering, HCI or similar. Those are the types of roles that I think um, that you should look out for. Those are good ones. Um, yeah, nothing really else much to say on that one. Barry, any closing thoughts? No, I think that's just, if you can stick with the with the human factors element, you will generally find the human factors jobs, I guess, to, should do does should do what it says on the tin. Yeah. All right. Uh, this next question here is one that infuriates me by Fluffy Winston on the UX research. They say, what do we think about democratizing research? There's a big push in my company and industry in general about democratizing research. I was wondering, what is your take and experience with democratizing research? There's some additional context there, but Barry, taking research and giving it to other folks, how do you, or allowing other folks to do it, what do you think about that? Oh, in principle, I'm going to be slightly contentious and say I think it's a good thing because it it sort of it allow if you if it's done properly, then it brings more people into the fold. It makes it less pretentious, it, <clears throat> and it opens up people. It opens up your methodologies to other people understanding how it's done because they're participating. However, that's not what this is about. Democratizing research is a is a drive by people to take away expertise from research and and for it to be people thinking that anybody can do it and why do we need researchers anyway? Let's all democratize it and just get people to throw their throw their own thoughts in without any structure, without any thought, without any serious rigor or methodology. And um, that's why I think it's one of these things. I think it, I, I stand by what I said. I think it's a great idea in principle. Um, but actually the amount of, by the, if you doing it properly, then it needs supervision, it needs direction, it needs support. Um, that's not what really they're trying to push for here. They're trying to save money and they will get worse product, products because of it. Yeah. I, when, uh, when we talk about democratizing research, that to me is basically taking the research job and allowing other people and other roles to do it by empowering them to do so. I don't think that's right. I think you should have a researcher that moderates. Um, but what you know, to Barry's point, you get input from plenty of people involved at every step along the way. That is where we really strive. I think you know we talked about this a, a, a number of different times on the show. Of we are the people pleasers. We bring everybody together in one room and try to hash it out. Uh, you know, from a from a perspective of everybody coming to the table with different. Um, ideas, thoughts, opinions about something. And we take that and we develop a methodology that's going to be suitable for the needs of the product. Um, keep researcher, keep research with researchers, uh, democratizing. It's the same of like you, a, a product manager would not let you manage a product. Um, yeah. uh, you know, a, a developer would not let you code. Uh, as a researcher, I'm not going to let you research. I will involve you in the process, certainly, but leave that to me. That's that's my thoughts on it. No. Hands up our jobs. Yeah. yeah. I'm not <laughs> going to do that. I'm not going to do that. All right. So uh, last one up here. Reading recommendations by Itchy Whisper on the UX Research subreddit. Barry, I put this in here for a very specific reason. It's because we got called out. Did you see that call out? Did we get called out? We got what, called, what you, called out. You got called out. I, oh, I got say. called I, out. This is, oh, this, is your re, this is your redemption arc. So um, 
I was wondering if anyone could possibly recommend any good reading material that I could look into. Barry, you mentioned this the other day on the show uh, that there are a handful of books that you could refer to. Um, and you didn't mention what the name of it was. In fact, I didn't even catch that until you mentioned the name of it. And then I picked that book up for myself because it was missing from my library. So um, why don't you mention what that book was first? And then you can mention your other fun stuff here. So the book, my go-to book for pretty much everything um, in terms of methods is The Human Factors Methods, A Practical Guide for Engineering and Design. And it's um, and it is really done like that. And it's by uh, Stanton Salmon, Rafferty Walker, Baber and Jenkins. Um, I've got the, the second edition. I think they're on something like the fourth or fifth edition now, um, which I haven't looked at to see how, how it's been refined. But it's just one of these books. If I have, I have it on the side. Oh, I would have it easier to hand, but um, a bit recent, recently reorganized the cabinet. I don't know where anything is. Um, but basically, it's one of these books that you, for me, you'll pick up and it's full of all my post its all the way through. It's full of my scribbles of how I adapt things and things like that. It's my go to book on every single project I do. It's brilliant. Um, there is um, a couple of, couple of different, different other books that I use, I guess, contextually, but. I've got new books. I've got new books that I think are absolutely fantastic. And I got sent them just before Christmas. And I've been able to give them to my team and I'm going to hold them up. And it is H is for human factors and U is for UX. And they're done by um, Pamela Stoffer and Gay at Bold Insight. And they've been done. They are children's books. They are small children's books that explain in words of one syllable that I can understand what human factors is and what UX is. And it's great. I've, I've put them in, I've given them to my children uh, to look at and they're like, Oh, we understand what you do now. We've, we've had them get, you know, my staff have given them to their parents and their parents now, Oh, that's what you do. I get it now. And they've just done it in such a way that is, is really nice, really good. Um, they're available in the U S for purchase um, in anywhere else. If you talk to them nicely and them, they'll send them to you for a donation to charity. Um, if you want to find out more about them, then get on my LinkedIn and I've sort of, I've mentioned them there and various other people have mentioned them around these two. They're absolutely brilliant. I don't know why nobody's done this, done this before. It's absolute genius. Yeah. I, I've taken a look at some of the pages, uh, and I, I concur with that, Barry. Um, for, for me, I have a couple that I really like to just recommend. Uh, you know, there's the classic, don't make me think. I think if you're trying to just, um, sort of understand the space that's a good starting point uh you know and, and it's one that i really like to throw out there just because it goes into philosophy a little bit about why you shouldn't make people think about the things that they're trying to do uh and then <clears throat> this one is always one that i like that's fun um and that i recommend uh it goes <laughs> it goes into uh, dark patterns, but it's called Evil by Design by Chris Nodder. And it, it really does go into, uh, it kind of breaks down dark patterns by the seven deadly sins and how it appeals to those sins um, and how humans are uh, wanting to partake in different things because of the methods that are employed in these dark patterns. It's really good. Really good. Plenty of examples. Uh, highly recommend it. All right. <laughs> So the yeah. other one that I didn't mention, I meant to, because I didn't, I mentioned it in the other one and forgot to do it, was human factors and ergonomics in practice, which is around improving system performance and human well-being in the real world, which is by Stephen Chorick um, and Claire Williams. Um, that 2016. Um, again, 
more contextual about why and how you apply things rather than specific methods of search. Um, but again, really well worth a, a read. Um, so yes, I, I'm hopefully all the things I got called out for now, I've now repented. I, and I think, um, yeah, I think your redemption arc is good. And, and those are our book recommendations, I guess, to start your year off, right. Get one of those books, I guess. I don't know. Mm. Um, we don't have affiliate links or anything for them. So, I mean, Oh, we should, we should, about that. we should, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. If you need help finding them, let us know, and we will point them to your point you to in the right direction uh, by posting some links for you. Uh, all right, now it's just uh, one more thing, Barry. What's uh, what's your one more thing? So my one more thing is we actually talked about um, space travel earlier, and I want to go back to my Christmas present this year. Um, so my Christmas big Christmas pre present from uh, my wife was a um, Challenger space shuttle. Um, and it's huge. It's massive. It took me. I had the idea that I was going to build a little, because I didn't want, you know, when you have like a, a, a nice cake or a biscuit, you don't want to eat it all at once because you want to savor it. And this thing came in a massive box with 17 bags inside it. And it's got the Hubble Space Telescope and it's got the shuttle itself. And the Hubble Space Telescope fits inside the inside the shuttle and you can take it out and then you can you can basically put new sails on it and the, the big solar sails and they've both got stands for each one of them and the little name tags in it. it's brilliant. so i was like i'm gonna do one book one small bag a day and and do that and i'd sort of did that for two or three days until we had a day where literally we weren't going to do very much and i sat and did the did the proverbial equivalent of stuffing all of it in or stuffing, stuffing all the chocolate into my mouth i built the entire thing and it, it looks amazing you glow so i'm yeah, no. Oh. So I'm, I'm. It's it's years since I've sat down and done a big Lego model. Um, it's certainly never, never done one as as sort of intricate and I guess grown up as as this one is. And it's reignited my sort of love of Lego. And I want to get some more models and do some different ones because they're just brilliant. Oh, I'm so excited for you! When I saw that, I was like, "Oh, that's the perfect one more thing, Barry. You got to bring it up on the show." Yep. I, I don't know if you were planning to bring it up on the show as a one more thing before I said that, but I'm really glad you did either way. <laughs> oh, let's see here. You. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess potty training update. Here we go. You ready? It's just shitty. Um, <laughs> and pun intended. I'm 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 hot with the puns tonight. Uh, nice. <laughs> hot take. Puns. Wait, that was in the pre-show. No one knows what that the context for that. I did some puns in the pre-show. Hey, uh, potty training. So I, it's been going actually pretty great. Um, I got to say, my son like is just getting it. He's getting it. He's getting it. He's getting it. The, the hardest thing for him to do is to understand that he can put things down and go number two, and then things will be right back there. Um, the, the, the number two is hard right now. Uh, yeah. But I think we got a handle on the other stuff. So like I'm all things considered, like he's doing great. Uh, and you know, it's, it's new and stressful for both my wife and I and him. And there's been a couple moments where we've just had those like, Oh my God, come on, just do the thing. Just do it. Just do it. And it's like, <laughs> it's frustrating for everybody. But at the end of the day, like, I, I think we all have, even him have this mutual understanding that we're all learning about this process because I've been very open. My wife and I've been very open and talking to him about like, this is new for you. This is new for mommy and daddy too. Really sorry. Like, we'll, you know, we're figuring this out. Um, and I just think it's, it's been um, a pretty crappy experience. Let me just put it that way. 
Well, hey, that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about maybe flying in comfort, I, I don't know. I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 250. What's the deal with double-decker airline seats? Uh, you go from cruising in luxury to cruising in this. A comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. Are you a fan of airships like I am? Uh, for more in-depth discussion, you can join us on our Discord community. Like I said, we got a whole bunch of human factors professionals in there uh dropping some good nuggets of conversation um uh, sorry potty's still in the brain uh you can visit our official <laughs> official website sign up for our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest human factors news if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple things you can do one wherever you're at right now leave us a five-star review that is free for you to do really helps people who are looking at the show deciding whether or not they want to listen it helps them uh make that decision for them Two, if you have friends, uh, like, you know, I, Barry's my only friend. So if you have friends, maybe tell them about the show and tell them that, uh, hey, these people are doing a great Human Factors podcast over here. They just talked about airships this week. That was a ton of fun. Uh, this guy kind of lost his mind when he forgot how to say words. Um, or, or three, if you have the financial means to consider supporting us on Patreon. Like I said, we are always updating those rewards. We just did a huge refresh trying to make sure that that value is there for the folks who support the show. As always, links to all of our socials and our website can are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about use cases for airships? Well, if you're going to talk to me about airships and other forms of air transport, then um, come find me on Twitter and other socials at Baz underscore K. Or if you want to come listen to this year's uh, episodes of uh, interviews with interesting human factors and human factors related people, then find me on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord server and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.